Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Money in the Mind, a nuanced approach to personal finance. I'm Aaron, joined as always by Andy. Hello, Andy. Hello, Ronald McDonald. Well, hello. We are uh, recording on May 6th for whatever that is worth. We're still kind of under quarantine, although here in Nebraska, there are some restrictions that have loosened up a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how people respond. I think a lot of people are still kind of hesitant to go out. I know that's the case for my wife and I. But today what we wanted to discuss is personal finance 101. We've dive, done a deep dive into various topics, you know, things as obscure as money scripts. And we've talked about investing. We had Justin Romano on our previous episode to talk about impulsivity. So today we wanted to maybe skew a little bit more towards the finance side of personal finance. And we'll also get into some of the psychology as well. But we wanted to just give kind of a very brief set of options and under, understanding about you know personal liabilities, personal assets, and maybe some things that you can do to learn more or take some steps to help with your own financial situation. You know, even even from the point of just trying to define some of these more difficult terms, like we've we've talked about compound interest, and for for Ron and I, this is this is kind of a daily conversation as as big of nerds as we are when it comes to personal finance. So we we want to be able to make this stuff accessible, at least via our show, to help people understand like what does it mean to take out a home loan? What does it mean to continue paying rent? Maybe the difference between those. I know I've had uh, a number of friends reach out to me and and for those friends listening, I, I definitely appreciate those those questions. But some of those questions that are asked such as, you know, uh, I've got stimulus money, you know, should I pay off student loans or should I save it? You know, and, and every single person's financial situation is different. And so anytime I get those broad questions, I always ask probably, I don't want to say a hundred follow-up questions, but definitely a number of follow-up questions such as, you know, first off, what would you, what would your impulse say that you should do? Well, my impulse say I should spend it. But anyway, so we, we kind of want to give you an explanation of, Ron, wouldn't you say just a, a personal finance 101 class? I think so. Was that your Justin impersonation? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. It's kind of sounded like him. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Millennial Mental Health Channel, both before and after he was a guest on our show. It's it's really good. Oh my gosh, yeah, and and just being able to hit on some of those questions, what he's doing for, uh, what him and Eddie are doing for mental health, and being able to explain it on a very easy to understand basis is exactly what we want to do with with personal finance and and adding just kind of a reasoning behind what we do for uh, you wonderful listeners. I also think we've seen some of the feedback over the course of 15 episodes that the most popular content has been just the basics. When we talked about credit cards and savings, 
that got more positive response than the money scripts or the financial trauma episode. And my thinking has been, well, if you want to find information about credit cards, then just do a Google search. There's, you know, 10,000 money blogs and podcasts out there. What do we have to add that those don't? And my, our thought has been to add the psychological element, the mental health element. However, there's still a market for even more just basic knowledge on personal finance, credit cards, mortgages, insurance, investing. So we're finding some good response to that. So we do want to, yeah, hit some of those basics today to help people get a resource. And maybe, you know, if you know about all this stuff already, feel free to skip this one, but maybe you'll stick around and learn something anyways. Absolutely. So what's on the, what's, what's first on the docket, Ronald? First thing I have is just basic credit card information. We do have a whole episode on credit cards, but I wanted to just give the absolute basics about this. And this can apply to any debt as well, but credit cards have the highest interest. So that's usually, and we don't want to have broad, you should do this type of advice here. We want to, we want people to be very goal oriented and value oriented and decide what might be best for them. But there's probably in terms of the best like return, the best kind of bang for your buck, the biggest value add that you can make with your per- personal finances is to pay down credit card debt because those can carry 17, 18, 20 something percent interest. And how does interest work? What happens when you carry debt? Well, if you if you don't know, this is when I was teaching uh, undergrad accounting classes. This was probably the most important thing in my mind on what I wanted to help students learn and understand was that when you make a debt payment, when you make a monthly loan payment, whether it's student loans, a mortgage, or maybe a minimum payment on a credit card, a good portion of that payment is going to pay interest and not the actual balance that you owe. So part of it will pay down what's called the principal, the amount that you owe. But for a credit card, for example, a huge portion of that payment, since the credit card interest is so high, is actually paying off interest, which is simply just the cost to borrow money. So when you make a payment, a portion of it's going towards interest. And the higher the interest rate, the more that's going to be applied to interest and the remainder will be applied to principal so that it takes time. And when you have, for example, like a $5,000 credit card debt, you can end up paying something like $8,000, $10,000 total to pay off that $5,000 debt just because of interest. So that's, that's the very basics of what interest can do and debt can do. Yeah. And, and to kind of, obviously we, we love talking about the psychological aspects of this when people get into debt and this is why, oh man, this is why it's so important to understand things like impulsivity and so important to understand things like depression and hopelessness is, is that's exactly what credit cards do for us. You know, credit card companies offer, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to give you a $10,000 just spending limit. He's like that. That's ten thousand dollars in personal loans that is is literally at your fingertips when you just want to slide or I guess insert chips now or hover over or shoot. Man, I paid with my freaking watch. 
at the grocery store really? months ago. Yeah, I hit the little button and it held it up to the reader and I didn't have to touch anything. And boom, I, I picked up my stuff and walked out. That was that was kind of surreal. <laughs> so um, and and so so it allows us this this opportunity to just say, oh, man, like I've, I've got money now. And, and truth be told, it, it is money. It's also money that you now uh, have a have a have interest rates attached to. And like and like Ron said. You know, if you spend a hundred dollars and your interest rate on the credit card is, you know, what what would you say the average is like 15, 16%? Uh, yeah, so something like that. And if you don't pay that credit card off, that hundred dollars off at the end of the month, you know, you now owe $115 instead of just $100. And, um, and oh, a little, little known fact about credit cards. So I used to work at the bank, right? And we used to have people come in and pay their credit cards off at the end of every month. And it was wonderful. I think that's, I think that's great. You know, if you're going to use a credit card, that's how you use a credit card. And so they would come in and they're like, yeah, I'm, the bank doesn't really like me because, you know, I pay off my loan at the end of the month. So you guys don't get interest. And I would just smile and nod and I'd say, <laughs> not true. So banks also make money off of every time you swipe the credit card. So, uh, you know, how, how do banks pay for those, you know, 2% cashback options or those, you know, thousands of miles that you get on the airline. They also, the, the merchant that you are swiping from also pays a fee in order to be able to utilize that credit card, if that makes sense. So, so let's say, you know, I swipe my credit card and you know, I, I, I swipe it for a hundred dollars. Well, the, the company might be paying within their profit. So if I go to the grocery store, I buy a hundred dollars worth of groceries. Let's say they're, they're, um, it costs them $60 for that grocery, uh, for those groceries in order for, um, them to keep it stocked, to pay their labor, to pay blah, 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 blah. I don't know if this is true. Um, let's just say for, for sanity's sake, it's $60. Well, I swipe that credit card um, they also pay maybe an additional $5 on top of that. So that cuts $5 into their profit. And so their profit's only $35. So no, the banks are still making money off of you paying your credit card off at the end of every month. Just a, just a little known fact about, about credit cards. Yep. And yeah, those numbers aren't exact, but they're just a good example. I think merchants pay something like 1% in fees, 1% of the transaction. Yeah, but that's it's always nice just to have some nice round numbers to help make things easier to understand. We will try to avoid using actual numbers as much as possible on an audio recording because I kind of find when I listen to some podcasts that are really numbers heavy, it's really easy to just tune it out and kind of get your brain into a fog in trying to keep up. So we'll try to avoid using actual numbers as much as possible. But a simple example like Andy just gave is, is really helpful. Right. And so, sorry, to get, to get back to, to kind of the example that we were going, you know, when you have a credit card that, in, that desire to say like, well, I've got this money now, I'm going to spend, 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 right? Um, because why not? Let's, let's splurge, let's indulge. And that's why obviously we talk about, you know, living within your means, living within your boundaries. But once you accumulate that debt and you start looking at it and you start realizing like, oh my gosh, I'm paying 
how much in interest payments a month because I couldn't pay this down right at the end of the month. Then we start entering those those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness and kind of like we talked about on our last episode, the ability that that dopamine and Ron, I, you brilliant brought up last brilliantly brought up last time the idea of shame and and now that we have this debt, it's like ugh, this is terrible. And sometimes we enter into these uh, stages of like, well, I'm not going to get out of it, so who cares anyway? And we continue to spend and spend and, and gather into that debt. So anyway, so that's that's some of the psychology behind how, how credit cards can affect us as well. Yeah, and there is loads of information on how they really work if you want to dive into the details of that. Two other kinds of debt, student loan debt and mortgage debt are incredibly common for people. Student loan debt, you know, you might have... Uh, a typical person might come out of college. I think the average is somewhere around $30,000. Maybe it's gone up with all the tuition inflation these days, but student loan debt works the same. You make a monthly payment. Part of it goes towards interest, and then part of it goes towards the principal balance, the amount that you actually borrowed. Mortgage debt works the exact same way. The interesting thing about student loans and mortgage is that both of them are kind of backed by an asset. Student loan interest isn't necessarily a bad thing because you have increased earnings potential as a result of getting that degree. So you you can you can make more money, which is why generally student loan debt isn't a bad thing. Now there are some, you know, not all student loan debt is necessarily the same. Some folks have a huge, huge number, which you see a lot of that these days. Some people might not get a job that makes the the debt worth it. But generally speaking, student loan debt has that asset of increased earnings potential. College graduates generally make much more than someone who has a high school degree. So mortgage debt is kind of the same in that you have the asset of that, that real estate, that house that's kind of backing it. I tend to, tend to not like to think about the, a house as an investment. Some people do like to to buy houses or buy commercial real estate and actually try to make money off of it for a living or some additional income. But at least for my primary primary residence, I don't think of it as an asset that I'm going to try to sell someday for more money. I think of it as this is where I live. This is you know where I'm comfortable. And so while there is uh, an asset behind the mortgage debt liability, I guess from a kind of a mental accounting perspective, I don't really treat it as an asset. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I'd uh, I'd agree with that too. I and and I speak from personal experience. I bought my first house when I was t a ripe young age of uh, twenty two years old because I I much like everyone who who buys a house. Well, why would I continue paying rent when I could just apply this to a mortgage and actually gain something from it? And so I was 22, I bought a house in Sioux Falls and I uh, eventually moved from Sioux Falls. And so I had a renter and that renter, um, the rent barely covered the cost of the mortgage. So I certainly wasn't making any money, but I was like, hey, when I eventually sell this thing, I'm going to be able to, you know, make a little money off of it, right? And so the renter was was actually good for about a about a year and a half, and then I, I don't 
I mean, a variety of things happened to the point where eventually I had to evict this renter. And mind you, uh, this was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that I owned the house and I was living in Omaha, Nebraska. That's about a, what, Ron, would you say two and a half hour yeah. in a distance? Right. And just everything hit the fan. And eventually I had to, I, I have very good friends up in Sioux Falls. So give my a very high shout out to my buddies, Seth and Jason for helping me with this situation of having to evict this woman. And then I believe when I went up there to clear it out, clean it out and finally say, I've got to put this on the market. I've got to deal with this crap. Holy moly, Ron. I think there was uh there had to be about four or five thousand dollars worth of damages that I then had to cover for that. Of of course, with money I I, I didn't have, so I had to take out a loan in order to fix up my house. To and anyway, long story semi long, it, it was tough. And so for those of you who do rent properties, awesome, that's great. For me, it was a nightmare that I never want to face again because it's not just, hey, I own this property and this wonderful renter is going to pay the mortgage or maybe even a little more every month. And it's just, it's a headache that's that's not worth it. Heck, my dad, owned, my dad owns properties and he had to, I think on New Year's Eve, the heat went out and he has a rental property. The heat went out in one of the units that he had, he had to call somebody and go over there and deal with that on new year's eve at like 2 a.m something like that i don't, I don't know it was it was ridiculous but uh i i tell you what for for a cost benefit analysis i would definitely say in my personal life um and i would say maybe for most of us who aren't rental property companies that is that is a an investment that i wouldn't get into but i guess to kind of go back to your question hopefully that answered it you know, when we bought our house, I mean, goodness, we're we're constantly, I don't want to say constantly pouring money into it, but it's it's kind of fun to be able to improve it and to kind of make it our home. And so why I don't consider while I don't consider it an asset that one day I'm gonna make, you know, a bunch of money on selling my house, I do consider it kind of that that place that I can create memories and and create opportunities to build with my family. I don't does that make sense, Ron? It does. Yeah. You make it your own. You make it, you make it a home. It, it's not just a place you live. It's a place where you create memories and build all those family connections. And it's a, it's, it has a lot of positive value to you, not because of just the fact that you have a roof over your head, but all the things and memories that you, that you create within it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, my daughter was born like a mile from our house uh, at a hospital. And, you know, even coming home, I was so nervous about letting her alone in her crib the first night that I like slept on, I slept on the floor next to her for the few, for the first few nights. You know, having, having those experiences so much more than just like, okay, what am I eventually going to get out of this house kind of thing? Yeah. So, the, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can view it. And, and going back to the rental properties business a lot of folks do have a lot of success with that so we're we'll never prescribe uh 100 with 100 certainty something you should or shouldn't do so if if rental properties is your thing go for it oh yeah absolutely and and good for you for being able to take that that mental stress of i assume anyone who's ever had rental properties can attest to they've had at least one renter that is just oh my gosh they're paying three weeks after the first of the month 
and they've always got an excuse and whether that's valid or not you know it's it's oh it's that stress it's that am i going to be able to you know pay the principal and the interest or pay the payment on my on my mortgage or on this rental property and blah blah blah, blah. there's just <laughs> good for you for people to to take that anyway yeah with mortgage payments, I did want to add that when you make a monthly mortgage payment, not only are you paying interest and principal, you are also paying for your home insurance and real estate taxes. So, you know, just to make a, a round number, if you have a $2,000 monthly mortgage payment and you've got a 30-year mortgage, then maybe 25%, I'm not 100% sure on that number, but maybe 25% of that is actually going to pay down the amount that you borrowed. And the rest of it is going towards sunk costs. You know, you, you can't get your money back for things like interest, insurance, taxes. So uh, homes can add up quickly. And the folks that say, well, you should never rent, you should always buy a home and build equity in a home. Well, sometimes homes have just as much of a sunk cost as as renting can. So it depends on where you live. The various parts of the country are different in terms of the rent versus buy calculation. And I guess one one final thing in terms of a, I don't know, something that helped me and my wife quite a bit is we did a 15-year mortgage on our house and we're, we're privileged enough that we can do that where we can take a, a larger a larger monthly payment so that uh, a larger percentage of our payment every month goes towards actually paying off the mortgage debt. So in terms of like a mental health financial thing that my wife and I have done, that might be the single biggest peace of mind move that I have that we've made is to consider, wow, we can have our house paid off in our early 40s. And I can't tell you how how much positive like mental benefits that gives us to think, okay, we're not going to be paying this thing off into our 60s. The The office episode where, where Michael goes and buys his condo and brings Dwight Dwight along and Dwight says you're essentially something like you're essentially buying a coffin if you <laughs> when you're buying a house that you might be paying off into your 60s or 70s. And and if if you're in that situation, I don't shame yourself. It's you know, there's millions and millions of folks who are in that same situation. So if you're still paying off your house, that's that's okay. It's it's again, a house is not an investment. It's a place where you live to have a roof over your heads where you're safe, where you create memories and have a family or where you can have a home base for doing all of the other things that are meaningful to you. So no, absolutely no shame towards those if you are still paying off a home. Um, maybe you've gotten upside down on a mortgage. There is no shame in that. Many people experience those types of hardships, and that's that's one of the ways we want to try and help. If you have financial stress from from something like that, you know, getting into a bad rental situation like Andy, and you have to borrow to maybe cover it. All sorts of things that it's really understandable why you can be in that situation. And it's not something necessarily to be ashamed about. You can start taking action to make the situation better. And, you know, trying not to compare yourselves to someone else is a, it's a good step. My wife and I, again, we're extremely privileged and we try not to take that for granted that we can, you know, apply more money towards our mortgage debt every month. And we're thankful for that. 
And we want to, you know, be able to also give money away. We want to be able to donate time and energy to help with other causes. So, um, and Ron, you you bring up an excellent point again. And and this is something that we cannot harp on enough that personal finance is your personal finance. Again, we get questions about, you know, should I do this or should I do that with my money? And, and if having a 15 year mortgage is something that, that Ron and his family values, then that, then that's something that they value. And it's the same thing with our family. You know, we're, we're very fortunate as well to be able to have that 15 year mortgage, but that's also something that's important to us. You know, maybe having a home and a place of, of refuge is, is simply just that. It, it, hey, hey I, I have a house. I have a house payment. I have a 30 year mortgage. I want to pay minimum on it. And instead with my money, I want to save up or I want to have a really good retirement or I'd like to travel every year. I'd like to go out to eat and try new foods. You know, it, it, wherever your priorities lie, that's that's exactly what we're here to, to help you with. So again, when we get those questions about personal finance, I always ask those questions. It's like, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know anything about, you know, interest rates and that. It's like, well, that's that's more the minutia than it is what you want. What do you want out of your money? You know, and uh, going back to kind of the mortgage slash renting question, it's like, well, all this mortgage uh, money now is going toward the the equity and I'm building something in that. It's like, okay, well, what happens when you're your furnace and air conditioner go out in the same year and you've got, you know, a five to ten thousand dollar expenditure. If you were renting, that's all covered by your landlord. If you are mortgage buy, if you are purchased, a, if, if you have a purchased house, that is now your expenditure. And so, you know, how a lot of the times people buying a house don't think of those things, myself included. Um, I remember when I was when I was 22 and I was like, nope, I just don't want to pay rent anymore. And I want to have this uh, this house. And man, the, the money that I had to spend in there, I remember getting mold in my basement and having to fix that. Um, I believe uh, one of our mutual friends, Ron, uh, Mark, he uh, he actually came over and helped us out or helped me out in that situation. So if he's listening to the show, thank you, Mark. Uh, that, that doesn't, even though that was goodness, 10 years ago, <laughs> that was very awesome. So there's so many things to, to weigh when it comes to, when it comes to mortgage. That's all I have to say about that. You know, Andy, that house had some great memories of doing our Spartan workouts, uh, <laughs> nine, nine years ago with our good friend, Jake. We, uh, we made some memories in that house. It was a good time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Best shape of my life that I've ever been in was doing the, uh, the Spartan 300 workout. Oh man. Also, uh, hosting a multi-level poker tournament one time when we had two tables going on upstairs, downstairs, and Ron eventually beat me. I had a, I had a, what did I have? A flush, maybe, and you beat me with a straight flush or something like that. Straight flush. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that run. Unbelievable. It <laughs> but, was nice. It was right. cool. Oh my gosh. Well, that's that's what I I have to say about home mortgage and rent. Sure, and there's plenty more that we could say, but yeah, this is this is personal finance 101. Let's move to the assets side of the personal finance kind of balance sheet. And the primary assets that people have are, you know, their checking and savings accounts. And then 
retirement accounts or investment accounts where you can put money into various funds and you have the risk of loss, but you also have the potential upside of of making a lot more money in the future. And this is where people can save money for retirement. They can invest into stock accounts and bond accounts, your 401k or other retirement plans that you might have through your employer will have basically very similar options for investing in either, you know, you can buy funds where you can invest in the entire United States stock market, for example, or you can have funds that are fixed income or bond funds where you might only be investing in United States treasury bonds. So the options here can be extremely daunting to think about, okay, what should I do if I want to start saving for retirement? I don't even know what I'm doing with my 401k plan at work. I have no idea what even that 401k plan is investing in for me. A lot of them just have default options. It's tough to know really where to start with something like this because we could have an entire just podcast that's devoted to you know, personal investing for your, your retirement or for, or for some kind of future savings. So I guess the, the first general, I don't know, recommendation, and we don't, again, we're not trying to prescribe anything, but maybe the single best thing you can do is if your employer offers a match on a 401k or other retirement vehicle, then that match is free money that's going to be earning interest on top of interest and earnings on top of earnings. And uh, even a 1% match, you know, my my employer only offers a 1% match, but 1% over many years can really compound and add a ton of value and give you a lot of good savings. So if there's one or two kind of recommendations maybe to walk away with, it's try to pay off credit card debt because the interest is so huge and also get an employer match from your your work 401k plan because it is free money for you. Um, it'll be invested into probably a combination of stock equity funds and those fixed income bond type funds. So Andy, do you get a, a match from Lasting Hope, I, I assume? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I was going to say. Um, so we, again, are just trying to spout off uh, information that is, again, personal finance, more one-on-one style information. If you don't know if your employer has a retirement option or a match, simply email or call your human resources. That is the best way to get this thing started. If you don't have like a financial nerd, like I, I dub myself at my place of employment, talk to your HR. That is the best way to get it started. If you are terrified and don't know how to do that, they are your best, best option. I have one at Lasting Hope and I believe like they provide like a, a half percent match for every 1% up to so many. I don't know, which, which that in and of itself is kind of confusing, but just I mean, talk to someone, you know, I, like Ron says, the, the earlier you can start retiring, the better. And the best time to start is now. And these, the, the minuscule amounts that do come out of your paycheck in order to retire is so much more worth it in the long run when you become either mentally or physically unable to work in your, in your older age. And so, yeah, talk to somebody at your work, call, email, 
you know your HR's text number, text them too. If you have any more questions, always always feel free to send us an email about those things. So, one of the just best benefits of having a workplace retirement account that has some matching is that it's also automated through your paychecks. So even if you're at the mat at the matching amount from your employer, you can always contribute more if you have the ability to do that. Uh, one recommend one recommendation I've seen is if you get a a raise every year. If you're already comfortable and able to live on what you make before getting the raise, if you apply that raise and say, yeah, just add, increase the percentage that's going towards your workplace retirement account, and then you won't even you won't even miss it. You won't even realize it's gone, but you'll be building even more of, of an account balance and getting that compounding interest and in earnings on top of interest and in earnings. So automating your retirement savings is a slam dunk way to help out your personal finances. Absolutely. Automating really any of your personal finances is a, is a solid move to start. You know, um, you can always call your bank and say, you know, I, well, don't maybe not tell this to your bank, but you can tell this to a friend, Hey, I have a really difficult time saving every month. And if I have a savings, I look at that and I go, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to spend that money. And so you can you can set it up through your bank to where you can you walk into your bank, maybe not walk into your bank right now. I know banks are closed outside of the drive-through, um, but you can you can call your bank and you can set up automated systems within your bank to say like you know at the first of every month I want you know fifty dollars to automatically go into a savings account and make it so it's it's difficult to you know, touch, but the more that you just, it's out of sight, out of mind from a psychological standpoint, the better off you're going to be at saving and, and kind of living within, within those means. And then even just sitting down for an hour or two once and saying, okay, here's how much I pay in rent. Here's how much I pay in utilities. Here's how much I pay down on debt every month. Or here's my student loan payments. And here's how much I'm bringing in. These simple steps to take, you know, if you need a spreadsheet, I'm sure there's a bunch of, you know, links that we could, you know, link to in the show notes to try to uh, help people, you know, figure out just a budget. I, you know, there's even an app out there that says, you know, you need a budget. And I, I hear it's a paid app, but I hear it's one of the best budgeting apps that you can get out there. Um, I personally haven't used it. I've heard the guy who created it on a couple podcasts. I thought he was he did very well. But I'd say, you know, as part as part of our personal finance 101, just create a budget. If you don't know how to do that and that's daunting to you, sit down with somebody and just that that knows maybe a little bit about it. I know I'm always willing to sit down with my friends and families and create something like that. What do you think, Ron? Yeah, I haven't used the you need a budget app or website myself, but it it is my favorite kind of recommendations website is called the wire cutter. And the wire cutter is my go to place for, you know, if I want to buy, I don't know, electronic equipment, when we got our podcast microphones, that was the first place I went to see, okay, what should we buy to record? And the wire cutter, they have a personal finance section, and I've found it pretty helpful. They have, you know, budgeting apps and all sorts of other recommendations like good credit cards that have good rewards. And they do recommend you need a budget for a good budgeting app. The 
what have I'm trying to think of what we've all hit on this episode? What we've had uh, um, the importance of credit cards, the paying down the, the debt. We've talked about the importance of mortgage. We've talked about basically assets, checking and savings accounts, retirement. One more note on a workplace 401k plan, for example, if you change jobs, it's fairly easy to roll that over into, you know, a lot of workplace 401k plans are through Fidelity and you can just roll it into just probably a Fidelity account or you could roll it over into like a brokerage account, like through Vanguard or Charles Schwab or whatever custodian you might use to to house other investment retirement accounts. If you've got a, an IRA, a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, you could roll over a workplace 401k into that IRA. There could be some tax events that are triggered there, but that is an option. And I, I guarantee you there are people who who leave a workplace and probably don't even remember that they had a 401k plan at work. So it's another good reason to talk to your HR person and say, hey, how does all of this work? They're they're pretty easy to roll over in terms of the mechanics. A lot of that's automated for you. But just be aware it could trigger a taxable event depending on if you're switching from a, you know, a traditional 401k plan over to a Roth IRA, for example, that would trigger some tax. But the actual mechanics are really easy and essentially automated for you. You know, and if you if you are a person that maybe is in their uh, 30s or 40s and you've worked uh, maybe maybe a couple different jobs and you've had retirement in the savings or, or sorry, retirement savings accounts in the past, uh, or maybe you just don't even know, it's a good idea to call your employer. I know when uh, I worked for the bank and I moved on from there. They they sent me a whole packet of information of like okay here's your retirement here's how here's the number to call roll over if you don't know if you have those I would call up those previous employers I remember at one point like I called maybe three different previous employers to get all of my retirement savings rolled over into one account and it took some time and effort on my part but you know it was $1000 here it was you know a few thousand dollars there and and all of a sudden my retirement account you know was was doing pretty well and eventually i rolled that over into a non-employer retirement account that you know didn't matter what job i had i'm just contributing to it a little bit every month and you know it's it's in a different location so it's not reliant on my employer but i also have a retirement account through my employer as well so the good recommendation, make sure you try to get your retirement account your or your previous employer retirement accounts into one location. Can you imagine, Andy, how many people have left a workplace and just didn't remember that they had or didn't know that they had a 401k account? Like, I bet you that there are hundreds of millions, if not, you know, in the billions of dollars worth of retirement assets that people just have no idea that they have. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, call, call your previous employers. If you left on really bad terms, they, that money is still yours. If you contributed money from your paycheck into a retirement account, that money is legally yours. So it does not matter if you left on bad terms that again, money is yours. 
Let's move on to another type of retirement vehicle, and that's an individual retirement account, an IRA. The Workplace 401k, they have pretty high limits, and it it changes. It usually increases every year. So 2020, the limit that you can contribute is something like 19000 give or take. I'm, I'm not exactly sure on the exact amount, but an individual retirement account is accessible by anyone and you don't need to have a workplace to necessarily contribute to one. If you make under a certain amount, you can get some tax deductions, um, and then you just have the general tax benefits that IRAs provide, like a traditional IRA. Essentially, a traditional IRA means you can get some tax benefits now if you contribute. The maximum for an IRA is $6,000. Again, I'm, I'm trying not to get too actual number heavy here, but an IRA, you can t- contribute $6,000 to it in 2020, whether it's Roth or whether it's traditional. A traditional IRA gives you tax benefits now, but in the future, when you start withdrawing on the retirement money, then that creates taxable income. A Roth is kind of the opposite where you, you'll have a higher tax bill now, but in the future, you'll have um, tax-free withdrawal. So the math can vary. Sometimes a Roth can be better than a traditional. It kind of depends on tax rates, you know, both now and in the future. And of course, future tax rates are uncertain. So there can be a way to kind of strategize around what might be the best option between a Roth and a traditional. The, the big thing is that both are good in terms of having some tax savings either on the front end or the back end of you know the time you make the, the contribution to when you take the money out both you know any earnings and interests and dividends etc will all be tax free the growth the growth is tax free so those are really good investment vehicles the the question people have with those is where do I even start? Because there are thousands and thousands of different funds that you can invest in. And we're starting to run low on time here. So what I want to do is just give a recommendation of Vanguard. Vanguard has the lowest fees and fees can be an absolute killer on your investment returns. They have incredibly low fees and they have a lot of good options that are diversifiable and automated. So a quick recommendation for a target date fund, you can look up Vanguard target date funds and you can just do a Google search and you'll find that if you've got a target retirement date 30 years from now, they'll have a they'll have a 2050 target date fund where it starts off more aggressive with more risk, but over time it gets less risky and it it starts out being highly allocated towards stock accounts like the United States stock market. And then over time, it'll become less risky and go- and shift more towards an allocation towards uh, bonds like U.S. treasuries that are essentially risk-free. A U.S. treasury is risk-free. The, the United States government is not going to default on its debt. So risk-free assets, you know, treasury rates right now are pretty low, something like 0.75%. But they're not going to lose money like the stock market can for you. Yeah, like so, earlier this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still haven't looked at my uh, balances from the last three months to see how much money I've lost. But if you're young, equities, stock market investments are good for you, even though there's a potential for loss. And actually, 
an event like a couple of months ago where it started going down pretty rapidly is a good thing if you're young because then you can buy more at lower prices. So um, a Vanguard target date fund is automated. It You don't have to think about it. You can automate your contributions. It becomes less risky over time and you don't have to do a single thing. So that's one that I recommend. The other is Betterment, B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T, betterment.com. And what I like about this one, they ha- they charge a little bit of a higher fee, but it's a lot more customized. It's kind of like a robot, a robo financial advisor. And Betterment is r- still really low fee, but they can do some more complicated calculations for you and automate it. And they actually incorporate a lot of behavioral economics into what they do as well. So uh, Vanguard and Betterment are the two that I recommend. And again, we're, we're kind of running low on our time that we like to keep to so we could we can talk more about that down the few, down the line but those are just some basic IRA accounts that you can use absolutely and and just to kind of sum up real quick so i know personally even when i opened a, a vanguard account it was a little daunting like i had to have ron walk me through it pick this pick that and and it can be it can be kind of difficult like okay how do i put funds in here how do i pick these things um my my last recommendation, if if you really if you're not able to do this, obviously you can always reach out to us. We're hoping to maybe put together a, a few video classes over how to do these things, so we can literally step by step walk you through them. Look for financial coaches in your uh, community, not necessarily financial advisors, but people that can just co- help coach with these financial paths. Uh, and, and if personal finance advisors is something that you want to look into, that's cool too. The the fees are usually much higher on those, but you know, do yourself a favor and, and at least get something started. And uh, and wherever you are in life, just know that hey, that, that's okay. A lot of the times, and this is my little final piece on here. We talked about it before. A lot of the times, we're constantly using phrases like, "Well, I should be saving this. I should be doing this with my money. I should be." Blah, 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 blah. When we do those things, those initiate a sense of shame in our life that, oh, we're not meeting our own quote unquote expectations or hell, even meeting the expectations of, of people that, that don't control our lives. We're trying to live these lives that maybe aren't necessarily ours. So cut yourself a break. You're listening to this podcast. You're doing well by just simply trying something. So, so give yourself a pat on the back for that. Yes, every little step, every little you know thing that you can do is going to help and is a is a win for you. I've started reading a book called it's called Loaded by Sarah Newcomb, and it's it's about psychology and money. And one interesting point that she made was the folks that kind of think about their values tend to not compare themselves to others as much, and that's where some of the shame can happen as well as when we start comparing ourselves to others. Oh. I found out this person has this much in retirement or I found out this person paid off their house. They have no debt and they're 35 years old. And those kind of comparison feelings can really be damaging, you know, and be discouraging. So if you can think about what is important to you, what do you value? What what principles do you have? How do you like to spend your time? The more that you align your financial decisions with your own values and goals, the the more satisfied you'll be with your financial situation and you'll be less likely to compare yourselves to others. 
Exactly. So thank you so much for listening. We'll end her right here if that's cool, Ron. And uh, yeah, if, if you enjoy the show, you, you enjoy us, definitely give us a uh, uh, review on Apple Podcast or share it on Spotify. If you're listening to Overcast, click that little star next to the episode. Just helps our search rating when people are looking for us because we are a newer podcast. Uh, we we do share a bunch of episodes and, and other cool blog posts on our Facebook page, and that's just at Money and Mind Pod. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Uh, we have our own website, moneyinthemind.com. Yeah, just. Uh, share it if you have a friend who who might need some financial help all right that'll do it for us for today thanks everyone for listening to money and the mind